It's Monday, May 8th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Humans, is there anything we can't do? I continually marvel at the technological capacity of man. Listen to the latest innovation. Humans were able to determine in weeks, not years, the cause of the latest deadly heat wave, as NPR reports. A new analysis led by scientists at the World Weather Attribution Initiative reveals that a heat wave in North Africa and southwestern Europe last month would have been virtually impossible without human-caused climate change. The analysis took just weeks, a more rapid turnaround compared with most other climate science research. That's right. Humankind figured it out. Our capacity for innovation knows no bounds. H-U-M-A-N. We're pretty dang awesome, aren't we? Just weeks to figure out the cause of the heat wave that took the lives of nearly 4,000 in Spain, over 1,000 humans in Portugal. And we humans are now using these methods to figure out the cause of Japan's record hot summer of 2018. The answer, human caused. The northern hemisphere heat waves of 2018, answer, human caused warming. The researchers using this tool called rapid attribution analysis also studied the Pacific Northwest heat wave of 2021. And the humans found, humans caused it, Siberian heat wave of 2020. Reason you'll be surprised to know it was humans. And the UK heat wave of last year, I will quote from the good people who put this report together, quote, without human caused climate change temperatures of 40 degrees Celsius, that's 104 Fahrenheit, in the UK would have been extremely unlikely. That is the phrase the humans used, and I take them at their word. Humans also quite brilliantly invented the AR-15 rifle, which killed five in a family in Cleveland, Texas, and then set off a manhunt, man, short for human, who for a time evaded the other humans. Then the humans caught their man, way to go, human. Also, humans invented the weapon used by a gunman who killed eight, oh, gunman, gun human, who killed eight people at a Texas mall over the weekend. And that weapon, Texas humans were at first reluctant to say humans are like that. But now we find it's an AR-15 type weapon. It's reported that this human was radicalized online by humans, took hours of firearms training as part of his job as a security guard from humans. And according to the humans at KTLA, federal agents are reviewing Garcia's social media accounts and that some of his posts expressed interest in white supremacist and neo-Nazi views. Garcia had a patch on his chest that read RWDS, which stands for Right Wing Death Squad. Patches, insignias, the entire idea of extremist ideas, humans, 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 all the way down. And 15 were gunned down if you take into account the wounded in Texas. Our tools, our tech, our talent. Is there nothing we humans aren't capable of? From the efficient killing of other humans to, I don't know, maybe some good things. It's kind of hard to focus. Actually, now this is a little sincerity. Perhaps you picked up I was being kind of sarcastic. But I actually do think we are going to human our way out of the travails of the Anthropocene era. Man, man, the era where our plastics and our emissions and our tools have so defined the environment. But before we human our way out of it, We have to get out of the way of all the humaning that got us all humaned up to begin with. 
On the show today, as much as I try to look away from the horror, here's what I'm really trying to avoid. But first, smart guns are here. A company, BioFire, is taking orders now for a technology that can radically change Americans' relationship to firearms and can change firearms' role in accidental deaths and acts of homicide. A gun that will only work for its intended user. There has been objections, there's been opposition, there's been industry opposition, there's been state law, there's been claims of technological impossibility, but smart guns are here. My guest today is Kai Klepfer, the inventor of the smart gun and CEO of the company bringing them to market, BioFire. Kai Klepfer up next. The BioFire smart gun is actually, and finally, what it says it is, delivering on the promise of a technology that only fires when controlled by the appropriate party, but also reliably fires when in the right hands. Kai Klepfer is the CEO of BioFire, inventor of the weapon, the technology, and the tool. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me, Mike. So I've read a lot about your bio, and we're going to get to it. But first, I just want to talk about the technology. Was it harder to solve the problem of false negatives or false positives? It's a good question. So in general, uh, with biometrics, you tend to see much higher false negative rates than false positive rates. Uh, So I would say uh, it was more challenging to solve the problem of false negatives than false positives. Um, And that's the sort of primary reason, actually, that we have Uh, incorporated both the fingerprint as well as 3D facial recognition and set them up as a redundant system, right? Where either the uh, fingerprint or the facial recognition can be used to unlock the system. Um, That allows us to mitigate the impact of false negatives like quite substantially. Okay, so the false negative would be it not firing when the user needed it to fire. So not unlocking is what I'd probably say is actually the key part. Okay. So what, uh, so I read about your company in Bloomberg and a phrase jumped out at me. The author said that um, the gun, quote, recognized me without an appreciable delay every time I picked up. But it did strike me that he would have written the word instantly if he could have written instantly. So what is that delay? It is, for all intents and purposes, effectively instant. Um, And what I mean by that is uh, you pick the firearm up of, off the table or out of a holster or out of a nice sand drawer, you name it, and it's going to be unlocked before you could possibly ever use it. Um, and that's the, the goal that we go for. Um, I, you know, I'm an engineer. I, uh, I ended up dropping out of MIT to start the company at some point. Um, and I've, I've always approached this from a technical and engineering perspective. I will tell you that there is no such thing as instant, um, technically, right? That everything, hap- everything takes time, even light, right? Um, but the approach overall has always been we want to make sure that it, it unlocks uh, – like extremely quickly. And Ashley, who's the reporter who did uh, did the piece, like he actually said on the podcast, basically like no delay, right? Um, which is, I think the, we want to make sure there's no delay to the user. They can just pick it up and use it like they would normally. How reliable is it? A hundred percent is probably hard, but I would assume that it's 99 point what percent reliable? So when we think about reliability, um, I say what we focus on is sort of real world reliability, right? There's lots of, I would say, like theoretical tests we could do that would say, oh, yeah, this is 100% reliable. Right. Um, and that's how most people approach reliability. We've taken an approach that's uh, much more sort of similar to how you would do it in aerospace engineering or automotive engineering, um, where 
basically we look at all of the different use cases, right, and all of the different potential failure modes of those use cases, and then test for every single one of them, basically. And so what we care about is, you know, what is the probability that you know a, a user picks the firearm up in any sort of vaguely reasonable way, right? Like you could you could pick it up by the you know by the barrel or something like that, and, and obviously it would not uh, unlock, but picks it up in any sort of vaguely, vaguely reasonable way. Uh, and then, you know, what's the probability that firearms actually going to unlock? And, you know, our goal is like for our customers, that should be basically 100%, right? Like every single time that you handle that firearm with the intention to have it unlocked, it should unlock. Um, and I will say, you know, over the years, even just subjectively that I've been handling these, um, it, it really, that is how it works, right? You really, if you grip it in any sort of vaguely reasonable way, um, whether with the fingerprint sensor or the facial recognition, it unlocks and then it stays unlocked as long as you're holding on to it. Um, so from a quantitative perspective, you know, we'll be sharing, I would say, more detailed sort of final performance metrics um, as we get closer to uh, kind of asking people to put their final deposits down and actually take delivery of the product. Um, but for now, you know, what I will say is we've been testing the product for, for over two years uh, and the product that we are demonstrating here that we launched just a few weeks ago uh, is uh, substantially more mature than what you'd expect to see from from most uh, kind of startups and early stage companies. Uh, it's not a Kickstarter project or an idea or something like that. It's something that's had you know twenty five million dollars of, of of engineering work put into it. And the reason that's a very deliberate choice, right? To to wait until we had a product that is pretty much final to actually start to talk about it. And a big part of that comes back to you know being able to demonstrate that reliability because no matter what I say, no, you know nobody's gonna. Uh, necessarily believe what I say, right? It's all about what is the actual experience of people that are, are, are using the product in the real world. Who wants this weapon versus who wants others to be forced to use this weapon? The focus for us has always really been on, on home defense, right? This is where we see the vast majority of children finding guns, teenagers getting access to firearms uh, for use in suicide and more broadly. Um, this has definitely been something where uh, the the most challenging, I would say, facet of, of addressing gun deaths in America, in my opinion, is uh, these sort of accidental gun deaths and suicides in the home. Um, more broadly, it's also where uh, basically storing firearms securely, right, and ensuring that their kids, et cetera, aren't going to have access to them. Um, but at the same time, being able to have the access to that firearm quickly uh, in an emergency, which is generally how emergencies happen. So do you wonder or worry that the user of this gun won't replace, let's call them dumb guns, but will be the person who has stopped from getting a gun because they know the statistics about gun use in the home makes the user more likely to die or they worry about safety for their children. So maybe this weapon won't increase overall safety. It will just uh, be introduced into homes that wouldn't otherwise have a gun. So I would say like one thing that BioFire is very committed to is we aren't... Uh... We aren't looking to talk people into buying guns, right? right. Um, I think that's like not a general approach. Like I've been on myself. I own a lot of firearms. I think when treated properly, when you learn how to use them, like you can definitely get net positive. But at the same time, you know, having folks bring firearms into homes where they're that's not a well-informed decision that they've made deliberately, where they're going to get the training, they're going to learn to use it, is absolutely a net negative, right? That's not what anybody wants. Um, so a big focus for us has always been encouraging, I would say, responsible training. And more broadly, uh, basically just encouraging folks to approach this space, uh, I would say, very intentionally. Um, I do expect, you know, from the t you know, t thousands of customers and, and potential gun owners and gun owners I've talked to over the you know, 11 years I've been working on this, uh, there are absolutely uh, folks that have considered purchasing a firearm previously and uh, have chosen not to, right, because they're concerned about their kids getting a hold of it, et cetera, yeah. uh, who are going to purchase the BioFire Smart Gun. So, like, yes, it will definitely result in some cases where folks that did not previously own firearms are going to own more. At the same time, I think the, the vast majority of children who are getting getting killed or injured from firearms in the home, and teenagers in particular, those are almost entirely accidents or environments that are uh, sort of against the intention of the owner, right? And 
in most cases, they're either unsecured firearms or firearms that are, are lightly secured, right, to be able to gain access to them quickly. And so I, I think it is a solution that should exist. Um, and I definitely think it'll have a net positive impact. Right. How much has state regulation and industry, gun industry opposition, been a roadblock to the development of this tool slash weapon? Uh, in general, I would say uh, very little. Um, although we do continue to sort of lobby against uh, mandates and other sort of uh, regulation around smart guns. Um, certainly, I would say before I started working in this, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, um, the, the New Jersey mandate for smart guns or things like that definitely had a, I would say, depressive effect on um, the development of smart guns in general, yeah. um, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I have always pushed back against that of saying, hey, this should be there should be a free market approach, right? There should be an option that, you know, we, we hope many gun owners are going to choose. Yeah, um, let me interrupt should... just so my listeners understand the dynamic here. They might be saying, wait, why is the inventor of a smart gun against the mandate for a smart gun? Uh, it's not just that you're a laissez-faire capitalist. How it works is a state like New Jersey had a law in their books that said, as soon as a smart gun exists, we will mandate only smart guns in the state. Well, this gave a lot of industry groups, other states, et cetera, the impetus to oppose the development of the smart guns. So if there's anything else you need to say to inform the listeners, please do. So what I'd say, like, mandates, like, antagonize both us as well as our customers, right? And going back to some of your kind of previous questions, you know, we've done a lot of work to ensure that this is going to work really, really well for home defense, um, even if that makes it maybe less of an optimal product for other use cases. Like, for example, it's a it's a large, full-size handgun. It's got parts that stick out the sides, all of which increase usability, increase reliability for our core use case, but make it, you know, maybe a potentially very uh, poor concealed carry product, for example. Um, and because laws like New Jersey are very sort of broad, right, and they're saying, oh, well, all guns have to be smart guns, it suddenly makes our product you know, not a good fit for a whole bunch of use cases that it's in fact not a good fit for. Um, so I think the the big focus here is really, we want to provide a better option and one that we think many folks will adopt, uh, but having that be required here is, is definitely not, uh, not not the approach. And so I will say, you know, beyond that, um, we've been, you know, we've seen a, a very positive reception from from the, the gun industry and the gun lobby more broadly. We're, we're a member of NSSF, which is the trade organization for the gun manufacturers. And um, broadly, you know, I think, there's been a lot of interest and receptivity towards, you know, what direction this could take in the long term. Mm -hmm. um, it does strike me, however, that if your gun is in the marketplace and is used for a number of years, then other use cases will be embraced. And if it works as well as you say, I don't see why police wouldn't use it especially because the most common explanation for a police shooting where the victim doesn't start off with a weapon is that he was going for my gun. And not only does that take the worry away from police, it also, in terms of municipalities who want to assure the public that police aren't engaged in uh, brutality or improper killings, it takes away an excuse for a police to draw a gun and fire upon an unarmed individual saying he was going for my gun. So to back up, would you recognize, do you acknowledge that if the weapons are in the field for a few years, other uses might be embraced? Yeah, I would say like the BioFire Smart Gun that we've released here is designed specifically for consumers. Um, I, I'd say a lot of people see the appeal of using technology to make law enforcement safer, uh, including many law enforcement departments. And that's certainly an area that we've looked at uh, you know, for potentially something in the future. Is there any reason why the technology couldn't be applied to long guns? Nope. Um, in fact, in a lot of ways, uh, 
the handgun product that we're building now is I would consider the most challenging version um, because we're very space constrained, right? There's yeah. a lot of yeah. technology we have to fit in a very small box um, versus you know a shotgun, for example, there's a lot of empty space in most shotgun models that would be, it would simplify many of the engineering constraints. So I will say, you know, we would need to, uh, you know, develop a specific technology there, right? In our electronic fire control system, we need to build a, you know, an appropriate version of that for uh, a long gun. But I think we have gotten a lot of interest from customers in in some sort of product in that space. And longer term, you know, that's definitely something that we might consider. Every entrepreneur, every innovator has an interesting backstory that brought him or her to this moment, but yours seems pretty compelling to me. Tell me about why smart weapons. So yeah, I've been working on this for almost 11 years now. Um, and you're and, 40? Uh, yeah, no, 26. Um, but No, uh, how? You're 26? Oh my God. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I started working on it when I was uh, 15. Um, and for me, you know, I, growing up, I've always been uh, an engineer. I love building things. I did lots of science fair projects and, and all sorts of independent projects throughout the years just because it was always my passion. Um, and, you know, I grew up here in Colorado. And for me, the Aurora Theater shooting was sort of my first uh, encounter, I would say, with, you know, gun violence sort of at the community level, right? I was fortunate enough yeah. growing up, I, I'd been shooting, et cetera, but I never really had to think about the the impact of guns uh, more broadly. Um, and that was, a, that was a big step change. And so I started to think about, you know, hey, how could we apply technology? How could we apply, you know, science to, uh, to this space. And as I started to dig into it, you know, very quickly realized that obviously we should be doing everything we can to uh, prevent mass shootings. Um, but at the same time, they, from a statistical perspective, they make up a very small portion of the public health challenges around guns, uh, where suicides and accidents make up over two thirds uh, of all gun deaths in America. And so I started to focus on, you know, what kind of product might be able to address, you know, some of these suicides and accidents. Uh, and, you know, obviously came across this idea of a smart gun. Uh, by no means am I claiming I am the first person to have the idea of a smart gun. Uh, James Bond has had one for, you know, for 20, 30 years. Um, but at the time, you know, and, and true today as well, nobody had ever built one. So it's been, it's been a wild journey. Yeah. How many Americans die from accidental shootings each year? Yeah. So it depends on how you define accidental. Suicides and accidents more broadly are about two thirds of all gun death. Um, accidental shootings uh, make up a, a reasonably small portion of that. Um, and again, it depends on how you define accidental, but somewhere in the range of around five to 10,000 Americans every year. Um, yeah. It is the, you know, suicide, well, gun deaths in general are the leading cause of death for children and teenagers in America as of 2020. Um, and those are almost entirely, uh, you know, for children, it's almost entirely accidents. Um, and uh, for teenagers, it's, it's a mix between suicide and then uh, a portion of um, uh, of uh, sort of more violent crime uh, that involves teenagers. Yeah. So this is why what I'm getting at. I read in the Bloomberg article about you. You've gotten some funding over the years. You've won some prizes. You split a prize from uh, Peter Thiel, who gives money to people who drop out to start companies. But it seems to me like a modest amount of funding, given that the promise is what you just said, saving thousands of innocent lives. In Silicon Valley, you could get, I don't know, 50 million to fund your app that does laundry delivery. Does that strike you? Does it strike you as a little bit of a shockingly uphill climb to get the funding, given how advanced the technology is and what kind of Im impact it can have on American lives, which, you know, are valued at several million dollars if you just want to do the uh, rough calculations the government uses? 
Yeah, you know, I would say in a lot of ways, uh, the short answer is no. Um, you know, BioFire has uh, has been by far, I'd say, the most successful company ever in terms of raising uh, money around uh, gun safety technology in general. Um, and, you know, in fact, like our most recent fundraising round is the first ever venture-led uh, investment into a firearms business in, in history, to my knowledge. Um, How much is, did you raise in that round? Uh, we've raised a total of 30 million. That round was 15. Um, okay. And so, like, th that's, I think... Uh, incredibly unique in a lot of ways and certainly has been uh, something that underlies a lot of our uh, you know, ability to hire the super high quality talent that we hire and things more broadly. Um, I think, you know, when investors are, are looking at businesses, um, you know, they are looking at them from a, a for-profit perspective and they're looking in general, you know, the more novel something is, the further outside it is of traditional business models or traditional industries, um, the smaller percentage of investors are, are willing to take a, a bet there. And so, you know, I would say, um, you know, one of the key things that BioFire has done is, you know, we we feel like we've built an actually viable business here, right? And one that allows us to address our customers both in the short term and long term, continually build really good products, right? Hire and retain like the best engineers. Um, and that's something that nobody's really just ever done here before. And so um, I would say like, we have a great group of investors and, and there's no way we would be here without them. Um, so in a lot of ways, I think that like actually our ability to fundraise and get buy-in from all sorts of different folks kind of uh, across all sorts of different opinions about guns, et cetera, is one of the key things that BioFire has done is I actually think very unique. Okay. Um, I know that you test the weapons there uh, within your facility, but do you ever take it? Can you take it to a public gun range and people who weren't expecting it see you use it? Yeah. Like I'll say uh, at the event this weekend, um, we had like almost exactly that same thing happen, right? One of the, uh, one of the range safety officers who's a uh, you know, very experienced gun industry professional, um, like, you know, hey, like, what is this? Like, what's going on? Um, and there was a very positive reaction there, right? And especially folks that uh, they get a chance to fire it themselves, they always have a lot of questions. Um, you know, I'd say, like, e even before we launched here a couple of weeks ago, we've been doing demos, like, confidentially for all sorts of different uh, reporters and, um, you know, investors and experts. And we have an expert advisory board that's comprised of, of you know, Navy SEALs and other special forces folks and law enforcement, things like that. Um, the overall experience of folks that walk out of a demo is, is like almost uniformly positive. It's, I, I've gotten a lot of comments like, wow, like this feels like an iPhone. Yeah, I, I've gotten a lot of very positive comments, I would say, from those demos. What's the timeline for it being available to the consumer? It's available for pre-order now uh, at smartgun.com. There's a refundable deposit basically to reserve your spot in line. I'll say we're uh, we're getting a lot of demand, uh, and so basically the goal is, if you want to get your product uh, uh, on the earlier side, like definitely go go ahead and put the deposit down. We'll be shipping first uh, production units uh, late this year, um, and it, for folks that order now, uh, you'll probably receive your unit like late Q1, early Q2, uh, and that timeline's moving out every day. How much do they cost? Base base price point for the smart gun, as well as the uh, the smart dock that allows you to configure it, um, is uh, fourteen ninety nine, uh, and we're asking for a, a one forty nine deposit refundable. Um, and can you do ship to all states? As of right now, we plan to fulfill in, in any jurisdiction where handguns are legal. Um, yeah. But we're working through regulatory approvals in a variety of states. Makes sense. Kai Klepfer is the CEO of BioFire and the inventor of the smart gun. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Mike. And now the spiel. 
You generally know what I'm interested in talking about on The Gist because I talk about it on The Gist. That's what we who play poker like to call a tell. But it's important for you to know what I'm not that interested in talking about, and sometimes for different reasons. And the biggest reasons I'm not interested in talking about something are they're not important, or I can't add anything new, or the add chicken to salad for $4.99 rule, which is in America, never pay to add chicken to anything. There's chicken included with almost everything. So the number, I don't know, what is this, five issue I'm least interested in talking about? have a king. Well, we don't have a king. They have a king. And isn't he magisterial? Yeah, sure. Whatever. I don't hate the Brits for their monarch or that they have one, but some Brits do. CNN, which of course had all the coronation coverage that an archbishop can stomach, noted that, quote, London's Metropolitan Police said it made 52 arrests during the coronation of King Charles III as the coronation drew demonstrators with protesters wearing yellow shirts, booing and shouting, not my king, throughout the morning. Not my king! Not my king! Republic, Britain's largest anti-monarchy group, told CNN that police, without providing any reason, arrested organizers of the anti-monarchy protest. The protesters were all, by the way, released later that day, reportedly, and the charges they faced include a fray, a fray. I shall now quote from Merriam-Webster. The meaning of a fray is a fray. Yes, a brawl. I am agog and a titter, as was Twitter, over the affray charges. But I gotta say, R.E. affray, you know, it's not right to arrest protesters. Human Rights Watch UK called it something you'd expect to see in Moscow, not the UK. All right, but maybe the consequences might be different in Moscow. If you compare those protesters with all the bright signs against the king and the loud voices yelling, not my king, outside this coronation, compare them to everyone who's ever voiced such sentiments when a king was getting coronated, you're going to say these guys got off easy. Are the charges particularly worrisome? Well, I worry some, but do I worry lots? I'm afraid not. Also, Camilla, Queen Camilla, wasn't wearing her crown. It was wearing her. Next item I'm not interested in, the writer strike. Oh, don't get me wrong. I like writing. I like watching. I like watching as much as the next guy. Checks on the average amount of TV the next guy watches three hours plus a day per American. Okay, I'm about, I don't know, a quarter to a fifth as much into TV watching as the next guy, but a lot of it is good. I want the writers to get their fair share. I don't side with the owners of the streaming services, but I can't be more invested with the story of the people who wrote Ted Lasso than I am with Ted Lasso, and I'm not invested with Ted Lasso. Succession's really good, though, but those guys are all paid up. I have writer friends who say, you know what, check in around late June. That's an inflection point. June 30th, a big contract with Directors Guild and SAG After that expires then. There's not so much incentive for either side to move then. So... I understand the issues, 11,500 writers on strike. I do want those guys to earn a good living. The ways that TV's distributed and who gets paid, that's all changing, not for good, unless the writers do something about it. So yes, I'd like the 11,500 to get paid well, just like I'd like the 3.5 million truck drivers who could be put out of business thanks to a technology to get paid well. That technology is self-driving cars, but it brings me to AI. Am I worried about AI? Eh, I am worried. Sure, 
Am I interested in the forms the worry is taking? Not much in hearing other people's worries. Not that they're wrong. There's something to worry about. We just don't know what exactly. Social media, right? That wound up being a mess. Some people in the beginning said it might be a mess, but who got the exact nature of the mess right? Pretty much no one. If the analysis is correct, and most people are predicting AI will cause chaos, well, how are you going to get an orderly diagnosis of the form the chaos will take? Also, it's one of those things where my worrying about it inaccurately doesn't correlate to my being able to do anything about it. If I was sure there would be a nightmare or a specific kind of nightmare, I'd tell you what there was. But it's all uncertain. Whenever I see an AI interview or a let's worry about AI type interview pop up in my newsfeed or my podcast feed, I'm like, eh, I'm going to pass on this one. And I, I give the same offer to you. I shall not burden you with random free floating, probably more correct than incorrect, but unspecific worries about AI. If you hear anything good, though, let me know about what what I should worry about specifically. Last, okay, so remember in the beginning I said fifth least thing I was worried about. It's probably, it should have been fourth, so I'm worried about getting the order of my list right. But last but least. There is no way to protect um, our financial system and our economy other than Congress doing its job and raising the debt ceiling and enabling us to pay our bills. I'm not that worried about the debt ceiling crisis. I'm against it. This is sort of the opposite of the AI worry. AI is all potential damage, some of which will almost definitely happen, but we're not sure exactly what the impact would be. The debt ceiling, we're pretty sure it won't happen, as in default won't happen, but if it were, then we're all sure of what the disaster would be. It would be quite profound. I am not blasé about the debt ceiling. It is nonsense to hold us hostage with the debt ceiling. I also think that too much debt is something to address. This is not the way to address it. And I do not think, I reject the idea, well, if good people do nothing, we'll be fine. We won't be fine, but we've got the people who are worried about it on the job, and they're worried about it quite constructively. I'm 90-something percent sure there will be a deal. I can't tell you what that deal will be, but neither can anyone else. So what I don't do, and I'm not going to ask you to do, is to follow every development or long-shot parliamentary maneuver that has less of a chance than Cousin Greg winding up atop the Game of Thrones. I have better things to fret over, things like AI eliminating writing jobs, concocting a sequel to King Ralph that stars Camilla's crown as a sentient alien intent on controlling world affairs. And I'm sure that will get a frave reviews. That's it for the show today. The Gist was produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is in charge of Lobstar Husbandry for The Gist. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. and thanks for listening. Charles was anointed with holy oil and fitted with a crown that features 2,868 diamonds, 269 pearls, 17 sapphires, and 11 emeralds.